This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Epping Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. We could not be more thrilled to have Juhu Trakral on our show today. Juhu is an absolute social justice legend. And we actually met back in, I think it was 2013, doing anti-trafficking work and immigrants' rights and workers' rights work. And I believe we met through the New York Anti-Trafficking Network, which, of course, um, Juhu was one of the founding members for. And at the time, um, she was at the Opportunity Agenda. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that she basically trained an entire generation of advocates to tell compelling narratives, to push forward social justice agendas. And she's amazing at bringing people together and masterfully curating conversations. Um, And as you can tell, I am such a huge fan. So Juhu, thank you so much for being on with us today. I mean, I could go on and on about you forever, but um, would actually love it if you could just give us a bit of an introduction. Love to hear how you got involved in social impact work and uh, your journey through your career and to your current work on OPSRA. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for the kind words. Song and Sarah, you're inspiring me with everything that you're doing. And I really think that you are getting so much crucial information out there right now with this podcast. So I'm very, very happy to be joining you today. Uh, So I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I am Juhu Tukral. I am a human rights lawyer and a social impact founder. And my background has always been in gender, sexuality, uh, sexual violence. And that's you know really been a thread throughout my work. And then another thread has been racial justice and especially the integration of those two and you know how they cross cut with each other to affect the lives of women and girls, LGBTQ people, and other folks who are in vulnerable situations. Um, I have done a lot of work as a lawyer, but then also, as Song mentioned, I transitioned into really doing a lot of capacity building for the social justice field and teaching social justice leaders how to communicate about our work in a way that's rooted in values, that's really uh, digging into these culturally rooted mindsets that people have that are already a piece of how we think about and see the world. And so it's our job to tap into that and then persuade and inspire. So that's a big piece of what I've uh, done over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And in the last, you know, I'd say 18 months or so, I've been taking my work from working, you know, with organizations and really taking what I had as sort of a side hustle of a consulting business and turning it into my full-time thing. And it's called Upsara Projects and really focusing on social impact. And so much of the work that I've done over the years has been within the social justice movement. And as I'm thinking about you know, where do I really want to build these deeper partnerships right now? It's with people who are in the corporate space, because that's finally a space, I think, where they've always had a role to play in social justice and human rights work. But over the last few years, definitely starting with last summer and the police state killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and and the awareness of just so many other deaths, it's clear now that 
you know, frankly, consumers and employees are not going to stand for anything less than a real commitment and authenticity to that work. So that's where I am now. You've brought up so many important points there. Um, And I'd like to kind of take what you were saying about, you know, working with corporate leaders. And we're in this moment where um, corporates are kind of poised for change. And, you know, we're going to be talking about the media today and media and all that it entails, right? Like social media, traditional media, media and representation and what have you. But on top of mind, re corporations and media couldn't have come at a better time, I think, than, you know, after one of the largest media events of the year, which is the Super Bowl, right? And I don't know if, you know, either of you were watching it, but I, I like grew up in the South. So like college football was, I don't know, it's still the thing that kind of like shakes my heart every fall and, and whatnot. And as mad as I am at the NFL, um, you know, I wanted to tune in and be connected to people. But then I saw like the NFL inspired change campaign ad, um, you know, talking about the importance of diversity to the sport and reaffirming the pledge to commit, you know, $250 million over the next decade to combat systemic racism or what have you, you know, showing players kneeling and putting Breonna Taylor on the back of their helmets. And my jaw just dropped and I was so pissed. And I turned to my partner and went like, are they fucking serious right now? So yeah, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on on the NFL specifically, you know, that ad specifically, but also more generally, like how can corporate actors get this right? Like how can they get their commitment and, you know, their attention to diversity right in this moment? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. It's such a, you know, because you're talking about with the NFL, not just a corporation and a company that, you know, has employees and has a product that it sells, but ultimately is a major cultural figure that that drives culture in such a fundamental way. So it plays these multiple roles. And, you know, I too grew up in the South. I'm from Houston. I will say that I'm actually much more of a basketball girl than football. But, you know, of course, I mean, I think as with everybody, I tend to watch the Super Bowl every year with my eye much more towards you know, the commercials than the game itself, because I'm not as into the game of football. But what you're hitting on right there with the NFL is this question of authenticity, right? We have seen the NFL over the last, you know, five years or so actually fail to step up and to engage in really counterproductive ways around racial justice with the way they reacted to Colin Kaepernick and all of the other players who were kneeling, right? And they kind of stoked that just the way that they treated treated him as a player very specifically. And then even as the the protests, you know, in the name of George Floyd happened last summer, the NFL had a number of missteps before they came around. And I think it's always important to give, you know, whether it's individual people or corporate partners or cultural behemoths like the NFL, mm-hmm. uh, we want to give them credit when they do well, yeah. but we also want to point out where they can be doing better. And you've really struck that balance, which is they kind of failed on authenticity 
because until they really reckon with their own past, their long past and their recent past around racial injustice, it's going to ring false. And so people like you who are waiting to feel like, I want to cheer the NFL on in what they're doing are actually going to feel taken aback. Uh, And I can give examples, you know, I I think a contrast is with the NBA, right? Uh, You know, they have done an amazing job over the last 12 to 13 years, actually, of really giving players space uh, to talk about political issues. I mean, there was a time when NBA players, didn't feel like they could come out and talk about these issues. But but I remember back in 2008 when Obama was running and there were players, you know, LeBron talking about Ohio being an important state yeah. Yeah. in the election. And I remember my ears were like, ding, 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 this is a moment that we can build on. And in fact, when a few years later, uh, the state of Arizona and then other states also sort of fell in line and started passing these racial profiling immigration laws, Mm -hmm. NBA teams actually, you know, had their names in Spanish and then, you know, put, put those logos on the players' shirts. We had, you know, NBA broadcasters and players and coaches talking about it. So this was back in, you know, like, like seven years ago and the NBA has really created space for their players and their coaches to be talking about this issue. And it didn't even start in terms of race and racial justice with everything that happened last summer, we've seen people in the NBA really speaking out since the election of Trump in 2016 in really profound and moving ways. And so that speaks to that line of authenticity. And that authenticity kind of comes from what we can say in the most basic way, from what are your brand pillars and how are you living and dying by those? Mm. Yeah, no, that's so that's so true. Um, authenticity really is at the key of everything. And consumers like we're so kind of like hyper attentive now to signals of authenticity. And I loved what you said about how like the NFL and the NBA, they're not just corporations, they're not just brands, but they're actual cultural behemoths. And you know, I was thinking about like why, you know, why is media important? We know that media is important. We know why right? Like representation in media is important, but I was kind of having, I was sort of struggling to um, kind of put my finger on it. But I recently read in uh, Jamar Tisby's How to Fight Racism, this line about how racial reconciliation must address how power is mediated through culture. This should not be assimilation where anyone different must adapt to the norms and preferences of the dominant group, this brand of racial reconciliation fails to dismantle the practices that privilege white people and their cultural norms. So that's when it sort of clicked for me. Like I didn't know how to succinctly sum up why media is so important, but it's because it like sets the tone for a culture and whether it's through the media and it's, you know, reflection of culture and society and, you know, um, signals of who gets to have value in that society or, you know, the culture of an organization even, right? Like as we're talking about culture broadly, um, you know, and what have you, and the outward expressions of diverse cultural norms, I feel like is so crucial um, to that work of systemic change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think part of what you're saying, I mean, the way that I think about it is that, you know, the media, it's it's how we write our present and it's how we write our history. Mm, I love that. Right? And so... 
that's why it's so important for for us, you know, to be to be represented in the media in terms of, you know, women and girls being portrayed as strong. Uh, those of us, you know, I mean, I'm I'm Indian American, and certainly for me, growing up, we never saw people who looked like us on TV or in film or really even in the news, unless there was something happening in India that could be construed mm. badly, frankly. Uh, so that's a big piece of why that representation matters. And, you know, another thing that I've been thinking about in terms of history is this question of how the January 6th insurrection and mm. attempted coup is going to be presented and how is it going to live in history is it going to be a day that children learn about in school is it going to be a day that we commemorate nationally Mm. and that's a burning question that we have right now for all of us is how do we intend to make sure that January 6th lives on through a very clear lens in history and as an as a very viable live teaching moment and a teaching moment for the next century, frankly. And one reason that I've been thinking about that is, you know, so my husband and I have been during the quarantine, we have been on, on lockdown uh, down in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's a place Mm. we've had friends and it's, you know, it's a place where, you know, someday we'd like to be snowbirds and spend some and some winter months down here away from uh, the brutal cold of, of, you know, New York winters. And one of the things that a few friends had said is you, you are aware, right, that Wilmington is the one city in the U.S. where that, there actually was a successful coup and it was mm-hmm. you know, race-based. And I did not know that, actually. No. You know, I had heard about, you know, the riots and the takeover of black businesses in Tulsa, Oklahoma and Rosewood in Florida had those, uh, those situations, but those aren't things that we really talk about or learn in history class. I mean, I would say actually for both of those, I had to learn about them through either pop culture or from friends who were history majors, that kind of thing. And this uh, this past spring, as we were settling into our time in Wilmington, North Carolina, I read a book that just came out in the last year and a half, The Wilmington Lie, and it really went through the history of the coup down here, and not just what happened, but you know, the last part of the book talks about the way that it was in some ways covered up on purpose, and in some ways the fact that it wasn't elevated and that history wasn't written with a clear view as to what happened, that it sort of disappeared. And then there's been this whole effort and there's been a commission and all of this to really bring to light what happened in this community. And it's been fascinating because, you know, there's a list of people who led the coup against a government that had, you know, black elected officials and that kind of thing. And there are places in this, city that were named after the people who led the coup. Mm. And I will say that since the um, events of last summer, that some of those have have been changed, which I think is a good thing. Wow. But probably with less discussion and recognition of that relationship between history and media and culture, I think is critical. Yeah, totally. That's a question that I've 
been having to of like, how do we like, because we don't know what we don't know. And so like, where do we even start to investigate the truths of our culture um, that are things where I feel like slowly coming out, but like, where do we even start? Like, how do we be a part of, um, of the truth telling, right? I love the, the examples, like the very real examples that you've given in your, in your own life. I, you know, I think to your point about, you know, history and, um, and storytelling and systemic change and the kind of very deeply rooted cultural mindsets that we have because of the stories that have been told for hundreds of years. I remember back when I was a naive, young activist lawyer, um, and I felt like I knew how to make arguments legal or with numbers and data or what have you um, in favor of the rights of migrants and, and workers and for de- decriminalization. But I remember distinctly like being in a storytelling for advocacy workshop that you led and you know you said something along the lines of like, you know, all the data and law and everything is important, but we're losing the war on the narrative. And that the other side essentially like hacked the formula for mobilizing their base because of their, you know, superior narrative strategy. And just like for context, this was uh, in a very specific context of um, anti-trafficking work, um, which was very kind of political at the time, you know, won't get into that. But, you know, that kind of idea of the, the necessity of a solid narrative strategy to really shake up those deeply rooted cultural mindsets to push forward, you know, systemic and political change just really stuck with me. And you've done so much to shift public opinion on gender, on immigration and criminal justice. Can you talk a little bit more about what that takes exactly? And I think that ties in to what you were just talking about with learning about and and retelling of, of our history. Yeah, I mean, this is something I'm so passionate about because I think that, you know, as all of us have learned, we can have all the data and the facts on our side, and yet we're still not inspiring and persuading. And I think for me, you know, as a lawyer, you learn some of these tools, but you learn it, I think, almost at this individual level of how do I persuade on behalf of a client or on, you know, on behalf of a particular issue. But we hadn't really created a way for us as social justice movements to engage in this kind of advocacy and to engage in this kind of communication strategy. There were individual people who knew how to do it really well, and some organizations did it better than others. But there was just a real gap around strategic communications and, you know, what I call brand strategy for social justice values. Love that. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, everything has a brand strategy, whether, you know, whether, whether we're talking about individuals or whether we're talking about businesses and our social justice values also have a brand, whether we realize it or not. And, you know, where I always say we want to start is with a very long term, you know, like a 20 year, which isn't even that long, but a 20 year affirmative vision. We have to be able to say what it is that we want, what is the kind of world that we're seeking to build. And I think, and you know this, you know, from your work as a lawyer, and I think, Sarah, you probably know this from other types of work as well, that when we're in the middle of it, 
there are so many times where we feel like we're on defense or we're just cycling through trying to get to those smaller incremental wins. We don't even have the time and the space and the mental capacity to say, where do we want to be 20 years from now? But we have to do that. And we have to be able to commit to it and say it out loud because that is what's going to inspire other people to join us. And that's also going to be our North Star in terms of how we make decisions and our strategy decisions along the way. So, you know, I think a big piece of it is starting with that long-term affirmative vision and then really honing in on what are the values that are important. You know, at the Opportunity Agenda, we actually created this process. Uh, we call it you know, the narrative wheel, right, of how you go around building this. And, you know, we start with voices of the movement. And that means interviewing people who, who disagree, frankly. You know, for example, on the issue of immigration, people have different opinions around, uh, you know, what it should take to, to get a roadmap to citizenship, or some people you know, disagree on, you know, what the, the rights in immigration law should be for people who have, uh, you know, a criminal background, that kind of thing. So there's there's lots of disagreements. You get all these different voices of people who have been you know directly affected, people who are advocates, people who are policy and beltway experts. You get all of that together, and you really start getting a sense of here's where the vision is, here's where the values are, and then you go to the next step, which is you start engaging in communications research that includes polling, a lot of which already exists that, you know, experts are doing, uh, or that you can commission yourself, focus groups. Uh, you can also do media analyses, and then all kinds of data scraping and social media analysis. And, you know, that's very widespread, just absolutely crucial. But it gives you a sense of, if these are our values, our visions, and the solutions that we want to set forth in the world, how are they landing? And how are they landing, importantly, with different pieces of our target audience? Uh, so one thing that you want to do through communications research is actually get a sense of who is your base, who is your persuadable person, and then who is on your opposition. And based on what kind of strategy you have, who are you focusing on? I will say that for me, I tend to be a persuadables person. I like to bring more people in and target them to grow the movement and at minimum, at least keep them from joining the opposition. Uh, but something, you know, messages and values that resonate with persuadables, they also have to resonate with your base because your base are the people who are keeping us moving and keeping things moving forward. And then the third step is this just impact and iteration and adaptation piece of it. And you keep trying it and things change. There are certain ways that we talked about race even five to seven years ago that were good. And we talked about racial justice and equity, but maybe it was harder to talk about things like racism and white supremacy. Whereas mm. now after everything that's happened and the public conversations that we're having, we can in many settings talk about white supremacy. That is a step forward, even as hard as all of this feels right now, post-insurrection. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. I'm thinking back to, you know, five, 10 years ago, and you could never say the phrase white supremacy, right? That was just things that we said within our social justice circles. And 
but now we get to kind of confront reality as a society and in some ways. Um, and that's just like been such a powerful step forward. So we've talked about kind of the importance of media and, you know, you've talked to us about sort of how to unroot some of the dominant cultural narratives and um, the tools that we can use. And But thinking about kind of media as it stands as a whole, right? Um, so whether it's media in the hands of conglomerates, so kind of a side note, but I recently watched Succession and I don't know if you've seen it. For those of you who haven't, it's basically about this family conglomerate that's, I don't know, like a combination of Disney and Fox, um, or if it was in Korea, you know, Samsung, and they own theme parks and cruises and news outlets and the movies. And it's about their, you know, kind of their ruthless expansion plan to buy up other news sources to become too big to fail. I am obsessed with succession. So good, right? Uh, it's it's frightening, and it's funny. My my husband first started watching it, and I was like, "What are you doing? None of these people are like I can't root for any of these characters, and I got sucked in anyway." And you know, I'm desperate for the next season to come out. Yes, same here. It's like you can't root for any of these characters, but you're like, "But what happens next?" Because this is what's going to be happening in real life. Yeah, it's so good, but also super scary, right? Um, and I feel it just, it just made that concept of owned media just so real to me. And so I was, yeah, wondering what your thoughts were on how do we like counteract that? How do we combat that as consumers? Yeah. I mean, I think that is where it's going to take a, a very big cultural push on our end. I mean, talk about like setting a very long-term vision, in some ways, it's about going backwards to a vision that I think we once held in this country. But, you know, the whole notion of journalism, and I really mean like that art and that practice of journalism as something that is done for profit, mm -hmm. is just, it's, it's killing all of us, really. You know, and I think that people talk a lot about you know, the fact that that we've got all of these issues with algorithms and ads now and social media, and that, of course, is a really important issue. But at the heart of it is this question of when we are seeking truth, when we are seeking facts, the way that really well done investigative journalism does, mm -hmm. that requires some sort of impartial foundation to start off with. And the truth is that we have become a culture in which media is entertainment, right? And I mean, you know, I'm not the first to say that. That's such a, it's such an obvious thing to say, but it's important for us to remember that actually, you know, journalism is there to, to shine a light for us on, right. on the things that we need to know and understand better. And you know, in the '90s, I forget what the you know the name of the the law or the policy was, but you know, I think under the Clinton administration, the Bill Clinton's administration, there was this deregulation of media that happened. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you know, companies could own different types of media or even the same type of media but under one umbrella, and people have been sort of ringing the bell on this issue since the early 90s. 
and this is where we are now. So I mean, mm. that's my analysis of, of the problem. Mm. And in an ideal world, we'd go back to a place where we are regulating media more carefully. I'm not sure if we can get there. I'm always a little bit wary of whether, you know, I kind of believe on a personal level, you can't go back and on a cultural level that you can't go back. Um, and so also on a legal and policy level, I think it's hard to go back. But I do think that we're at this place where there is more and more consumer demand that something be done. My concern is that it's going to be around that sort of easiest ring to grab around, like we need to regulate social mm-hmm. media. Uh, like, like, you know, a lot of people were really excited about Trump being kicked off of Twitter. Right. You know, I was sort of like, this is, it doesn't mean that much, actually. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it, it's fine for now, but that was an action that was too little too late. And what incentive did Twitter really have, right? Yeah. Your business was blowing up. Yeah. I'd love your thoughts on that in terms of what do you think the possibility is for us to move forward? Because I do think that there's an opportunity here and there's a lot of pain around people. You know, I feel like I'm seeing so much around, you know, what to do when you lose family members to extreme right ideologies and conspiracy theories. So I know that there's some Mm -hmm. ground here. But I think that we need some really sharp thinking around where we're going to go next. And there are people who are experts on that as well. I feel like I'm a little bit pessimistic about this because everything that I've heard recently, which are great ideas, you know, pay for your news, which I do, go for some of those smaller news sources, right? There's been, I I don't remember the, the numbers, but I recently saw an article about how many small local papers closed in the last year, which I thought was really interesting. But, you know, I'm someone who doesn't read a small local paper, so that doesn't really, like that. I can't even imagine, you know, going, going and actually reading those papers. But I think that like for me, and maybe even for the three of us, those could dramatically change how we're able to consume news. And to be honest, the first time I watched cable news in like years was on the inauguration this year because I wanted to see that. And so I turned on cable news to watch it. But otherwise, I don't watch cable news. And so I do feel like sometimes when we talk about what you can do and and how the system might change, it doesn't actually address the fact that a majority of of Americans, at least, are probably going to continue to get their news primarily from social media and from cable news, which really does beg the question, like, then, then is regulation the answer? And and to be honest, I'm still not sure. Like, I have listened to a lot of different people talking about this and people who are kind of experts in the area. And I've yet to hear, like, here's the policy decision or like, here's the direction we should go that will be effective in creating well or broadly consumed news sources that can be seen as trustworthy. So at least for me, it's it's kind of a big question. I I do see more regulation coming for social media just because it's not what we all thought it would be <laughs> um, in in so many ways with news. But but yeah, on the other hand, I'm just not yet convinced that there's a strategy that brings not just those of us who are like super passionate about finding truth and like really understand the difference between 
news for entertainment's sake versus news for information. And, you know, like you said, shining a light sake, um, you know, what about the other, whatever, 95% of Americans who work and listen or read the news in the evening when they get home and it's on Facebook or, or TV. I, I just don't yet see something that like really addresses that. Um, that being said, I think policy will be necessary, but I think that leadership in general, you know, we talked, we started this conversation talking about corporates, but government leadership, corporate leadership, local government leadership being like consistent and telling the truth and like being honest when truth isn't being told, I think could go really far in creating an incentive for our news to be truthful and re-engaging the trust of Americans. No, I agree. And I think that one thing that's that you're pointing to is this idea, and I, and I think this is true of so many of our social justice issues, right? Is that you know, as individuals, there's things that we can try to do, like pay for media, et cetera, or just, you know, be really careful about, you know, what it is that we read and share and that kind of thing. But the solutions to this will be systemic and there will yeah. largely be some political element to this. I mean, this is a place where government will have to step in. And also, you know, I mean, this is the great thing about the United States that, people really are committed as Americans to this idea that we are innovators and to our history of hustling up new ideas and new ways of doing things. And I think that this is a place where media is going to have to come to a place where these companies are really willing to innovate and figure out what their income streams can be in a way that still shines that light on the truth, but also knowing that the government is there to be that watchdog. And I just heard the New York Times daily podcast on uh, Smartmatic, this voting software company, and they are suing a number of outlets. And it's that litigation that's actually starting to kind of make a difference around what certain media outlets are saying about what happened in the election. So the law and the government absolutely has a place, but we are in this sort of new territory. I will say that an organization that I follow and have followed for years is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. On Twitter, they're at EFF, and they always have a very smart analysis about where we could be headed and you know what the solutions are. But um, I don't think that we're going to go back to this heyday of of a heavily regulated media system. So we are going to need some some new thinking. You both made excellent points about what it might look like going forward. And I think the final piece that we haven't really talked too much about, Sarah, you just mentioned, right? Like so many people these days are getting their news actually through social media. I think we've all been thinking about what the world has learned through social dilemma and algorithms and, and ads and whatnot. And right now, right, the news that we're getting through social media, it's purposefully made to cause a rift and and to polarize us. And so it's become so hard to like have a discourse. And I don't know about the two of you, but I've just found myself just being 
really exhausted. Like I'll be in the middle of reading people's comments and going down rabbit holes. And then I'm like making this choice between like, okay, do I stop reading or do I comment and engage? And is it worth it? And what's the best for my own mental health versus what's the best for reconciliation? And I was wondering if you all had thoughts or advice on the now and like how we engage with with social media, whether it's, you know, with people who are like us or with people who are not like us. And how do we sort of collectively make the world of social media better, right? Um, despite what the companies are doing. Yeah, no, I think that's so, it's so important, not just from this, you know, like advocacy and, and social impact lens, but just, I mean, I think you're also speaking to that mental health lens for all of us. Uh, you know, I know for me, it's it's actually kind of a joke because I am usually like four days behind on what's happening in the news. And that's kind of always been the case with me. Like I don't pay attention necessarily to the daily news cycle. And I've always checked out of that for my own, like my mental health and my productivity. Like I cannot be pulled in in that way and then also have the bandwidth to think about the things I need to think about and execute the way that I want to execute on things. And so I do try to be very careful about what kind of media I consume and what I share. But then also I will tend to set aside, you know, like my chai time and that's my time to dig into an issue that, you know, maybe everybody else stopped talking about four or five days ago, but then I'm actually going to be able to dig into it. And I do also, you know, rely on information from organizations and think tanks that, you know, I am personally, I think, you know, most people would consider me very, very far left and progressive. And so I will seek out information from, you know, for example, Brookings, which is a very sort of center, center left, moderate institution. And there's a lot of people on the left who don't always agree with them. But I will find that the way they present their information, I can see what their biases are and I can see where they don't have bias in a certain way. And I can just pull the facts as I need. I don't really want to be sold an entire story that I'm already going to agree with necessarily. Mm -hmm. And when I do, I know where to go for that as well. But I think it's something that we can all be kind of careful about is like, who are the outlets that push us to think in a slightly different way so that we're just checking our own biases as well? I 100% agree with that. Um, I think that that's something that I've tried to, for a while, it was mostly through social media, like trying to engage people who I didn't necessarily agree with, but, you know, they were continuing to speak about issues that I knew were important or interesting and kind of liked to hear their perspective, even if I didn't agree with it. And I think that that process personally was really formative for thinking about why don't I disagree with things? Because some of it might be, I, I I disagree because I don't understand, right? Like they're just coming from an angle that I completely don't understand. And sometimes it was just, you know, it was something else. And I think getting comfortable with, you know, <laughs> I, I feel like so much of this last year and when we talk about media and politics, we're, we're talking about like what is true and what is truth. And I think that's important um, and something that we really need to grapple with. And, and we've kind of mentioned that here, but you know, assuming that we get there, assuming that we can get to like, okay, there's 
consequences for just lying. You, you know, you, you have to tell the truth. You have to point to real sources. We're still going to disagree about a lot (laughs) and getting comfortable disagreeing and like understanding why you disagree, I think is a really important um, personal step that, that I've taken. And one of the things that I've started doing this year in 2021 in my paying for news process was becoming a paid subscriber for the dispatch. And they are a conservative newsletter news outlet. And they are, I think they were probably a bunch of like never Trumpers um, who are, you know, have tons of experience. A lot of them are from DC. They're kind of all spread out. And I like reading their news because for the most part, when they're just telling the news, I'm like, this is the news, right? They're really trying to just say things based on on fact. And they do have opinion pieces and I don't agree with them often, but sometimes I do. And I like reading what they have to say and kind of thinking about why do I agree or not. But I think to what you said, I choose to do that. I don't necessarily want to put myself in a place where I'm going to be bombarded on social media constantly that's going to stress my response. Like I find that really different. Like I'm not going to engage on social media. In fact, like some of the people, you know, right or left of where I might sit politically, um, I've stopped following on social media because I could feel just a constant like emotional reaction and the stress about like I should do something about what they're talking about or I need to think, you know, more critically about this or whatever. And I just realized that that wasn't healthy. You know, that wasn't the way that I needed to to take in those issues and think about them and think about what I do believe and and the policies that I that I think are important. So I, I will say at least personally, figuring out how for myself to pull news out of social media, <laughs> um, but still you know social media is important. It's a good way to find people you never would have found before. So that's been a a challenge, but an important one for me this year is like figuring out what that balance is. I think that's great and really well said. And and I love, yeah, that you're you're subscribing to a, a conservative newsletter to get that that pushback in your own mind. I mean, I think in many ways what we're talking about is, you know, I think we're calling for this resurgence perhaps of intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with both of you and so much of what you said resonates with me. So Juhu, like being intentionally four days behind the news cycle, because it's just like too distracting. And I remember when I like first came to business school, I made it a point not to look at the news for a month because I just needed to detox and like be okay again um, before diving back into the real world. And Sarah, to your point about like engaging with people from different perspectives. And we've talked a lot about how business school and being surrounded by people who no longer come from our perspectives. It was so eye-opening. And for me, I think I've tried to, you know, in the past year to really learn how to, I don't want to say like meaningfully engage because that sounds so canned, but like to have conversations about hard things that we don't agree on with people that I genuinely care about, um, but have different viewpoints than, um, than me. I read really 
kind of good advice from Emma Francis Bloomfield, who is a, a professor at UNLV, and her research is on how um, scientific misinformation gets spread and how to promote truth instead. And um, I think her advice applies to all things um, that I tend to be on different sides of the fence on some people on um, whether it's about like race and racism or like climate change or, you know, or what have you. And the points that she makes are uh, choose whether it's worth engaging. Like, is it someone that you actually have a personal connection with or is it someone that just provoked you and, and you want to respond to, right? And and figuring out what's worth your time. And two, something that is that should be, I think, pretty, uh, I guess, self-explanatory, but something that I've found myself having to check a lot of times um, is to make sure to not be patronizing. So instead of like having a corrective tone, treating the other person as an equal partner in the discussion. And, you know, I'm not proud to admit it, but like, Sometimes I can be a little bit condescending, I think. I don't know. Just kind of like honestly just checking my tone. And it's been a, a process of personal growth in that way too. And the last thing that she mentions is to offer to trade information. And, and Sarah, you've mentioned that. So like, here, you read one of mine and I'll read one of yours. And then just kind of going back and forth. So it's not us just making arguments and kind of attacking one another and one another's character, but like really just being like, okay, this is where I'm getting my information. Like, how about you? And then to get to the middle um, sort of that way. So um, those are all really excellent points. And I think even part of what you're saying, Song, is going back to this idea that you know, that I was talking about earlier in terms of strategic communications, is this argument with this particular person going to be worth my time? I mean, that's another analysis around target audiences, right? Is somebody worth me engaging in this conversation with is another way of saying, you know, are they part of my base? Probably not. But are they persuadable? Or are they in opposition that they're not going to get me to agree with them? And so should I spend my energy elsewhere? And Even this question of, you know, all of us, when we get frustrated at a certain point, we'll start being condescending and saying, I can't believe you don't. Like, where are you on this? Right. And that is an example of why it's so helpful to us to go back to values based framing of our issues. We all fundamentally, as people, we do want the same things. We may not define them always in the same way, but there is this, you know, and maybe that's just way too optimistic of me, but I really do believe that there is this commonality that we have. And yes, there is hate out there and there is a lot of ugliness, but there are many people that if we connect through values and start fleshing out what that means and building the kind of world we want to build, that is a way that we can communicate. It can also be exhausting to engage with people in that way. So I think that's why we also look at these as systemic issues and solutions. Yeah, that's such a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Jihu, for being on with us and for sharing your your wisdom and the hope that you have and um, just the frameworks for truly kind of changing the way that we engage with the media and the news around us. This was such a fascinating, deep, meaningful, and much needed conversation. We'd love to share with our listeners um, where they can connect with you and and even work with you um, through your organization. So how can they best get in touch with you? 
Yeah, I am easy to find on Twitter at Jew Who Took Rawl and on LinkedIn. That's uh, one of the, the beauties of having an unusual name. I'm always easy to find. And I'm in the process of updating my website, which I've been you know doing for six months and telling everyone that. Uh, and it's com. So one day that will be updated and launched. Amazing. Thank you, Juhu. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fascinating and I learned a lot from both of you.